Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 32. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And uh, we are so happy to be back. We want to just say right away, thank you to our friends over at Detour to Neverland. We had a great crossover episode with them this past weekend in celebration of National Puppy Day. And I know a lot of people have been enjoying that one. So thank you so much for Brendan and Catherine for doing that with us. That was a lot of fun. I had so much fun with them. Yeah, and if you guys haven't checked them out yet, you can make sure that you download them. Detour to Neverland, you can find them on all the social media. We've plugged them a few times on our social. They're, they're a great show. The, the, we've been on their show before, actually. I want to say that was episode number 45, I think was 45 the... 45 or 46, yeah. Yeah, the, the one we were on. And it's what's cool about what they do over there, if you guys haven't listened to them yet, is they basically spotlight uh, Disney content creators and... And product producers. Right. So if you're into buying shirts on Etsy or if you're into finding other Disney podcasts or blogs or vlogs, they're a great source for that. It's like a one-stop shop. Yeah, basically. So thank you to Brendan and Catherine again. That was a great show. Um, And thank you for all of you who have downloaded it. Um, We've gotten a lot of feedback on it. And if you haven't checked it out, go ahead and check it out from this past Saturday. Bonus episode, big crossover with the two podcasts. Um, But today, we're very excited to bring you this episode uh, in which uh, we discuss Cinderella, one of those all-time Disney great films. Another classic fairy tale that was ungruesomed by Disney. Yeah, they did that quite a bit, didn't they? And a return of the Blue Velvet book. Yes, another one that starts on a blue velvet. Finally, we haven't had one of these in a while. It felt like the first, oh, I don't know, half a dozen episodes or so that we did of Monoreal Radio had films that opened with that book on the blue velvet, and then we got away from it for so long. So, Even a spoof film, like Enchanted had it. But I'm so happy that it's back. I, it's, it's a comfort level thing for me now. <laughs> like I feel like we're back to where we're supposed to be. Yes. For those of you who haven't seen it, um, and I doubt there's anybody out there that hasn't, uh, reminder, now would be the time to turn this off because here come the spoilers. Uh, so the movie opens, we find out that Cinderella is a servant in her own home following the death of her father, as all she has left is her evil stepmother and her two evil stepsisters, all while wishing for something better. We meet her animal friends, specifically the mice, namely Gus and Jack. Um Gus, she finds uh, in a trap, and she's recently freed him and given him the name of Gus. Uh, We also meet Lucifer, her stepmother's cat, as well as her own dog, Bruno. Cinderella prepares breakfast for her stepmother and stepsisters while also collecting their laundry for the day, but she is also punished with nearly a dozen other responsibilities after one of her stepsisters finds Gus under her teacup and believes Cinderella planted him there as a prank. We meet the king who is set on marrying off his son, the prince, so he arranges a ball in which he invites all available maidens in the kingdom. Her stepmother says Cinderella can attend the ball if she gets all of her work done, and if she finds something suitable to wear, in spite of the fact that the king's orders were 
all the maidens were to attend. Um, Cinderella's animal friends help mend one of her mother's old dresses and get her ready for the ball. Her stepsisters tear the dress apart, ensuring Cinderella won't go to the ball. Cinderella, heartbroken, runs off to cry in the garden when her fairy godmother appears, gets her a dress and a carriage while turning her mice into horses, but says the magic expires at midnight. Cinderella arrives at the ball and the prince is smitten immediately. They spend the entire ball together, but as the clock strikes midnight, Cinderella leaves hastily, not realizing she spent her evening with the prince, leaving behind one glass slipper. The king sends his men out to find the girl who fits the slipper by making every girl in the kingdom try the slipper on. When her stepmother realizes that Cinderella was the girl at the ball, she locks her in her bedroom to keep her from trying the slipper on. Gus and Jack get the key to the door, but are intercepted by Lucifer before they can get it to Cinderella. Bruno arrives, chasing away Lucifer, who falls out of a window. Cinderella comes out of the room, but her stepmother trips one of the king's men, causing the slipper to break. Cinderella reveals the second slipper, which proves to be a perfect fit, and goes on to marry her prince. So this one comes out, uh, 1950 was the year of its release. This one, when I was a kid, believe it or not, of all the Disney films, this one was one of my favorites. You know, I do believe that because this is such a classic Disney in that it has something in it for everybody. Um, Because it was big in my house, too, but more with my brother. He loved all the animals. I think that's what it is, especially Jack and Gus. They provide so much comic relief that you can't help but really love them. Right. And to be honest with you, without delving into the character too much, because we'll do that in just a few minutes, I personally love Cinderella's I'm over this attitude. And I feel like because she kind of carries a certain swagger to her, she doesn't come off necessarily as we've called them in the past, the flowery princess. Even though this is a princess film, I don't think that it oozes appealing to only a female audience. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because as a kid, she wasn't that big with me as far as princesses go. Like I loved the movie overall, always enjoyed it as a kid, Um, but she was just never one of my favorites. And I totally considered her a flowery princess. And there's, there's a lot of debate to her because, uh, you know, a lot of people say she is like Snow White and that she just does what she's told and she's kind of a slave in her own household. But upon this viewing, my mind was changed a lot because I realized like how sarcastic she is almost, right. you know, with the clock chiming in the morning and uh, when she first wakes up out of bed, you know, she's not as happy to do these chores as she seemingly is when she's singing all day long. Um, And what I realized this time around is that she kind of is a stronger princess because she does want to get out of this situation. And we'll definitely circle back to that. Like you said, when we, when we delve into the character more, but um, yeah, this, I, I kind of don't think I appreciate it as much as a kid. 
I think that this film has enough going for itself where as a kid you enjoy it because of the animals, the animation, the music. But I think that as you get older, you certainly do view this movie in a different light. I think this movie ages very well. Yeah. Um, I, I love the script. I think the dialogue is good. At times it's very snappy. As I said, you get the comic relief really from all the mice. And they, I love how they torture Lucifer. First off, I love the fact that the stepmother's cat is named Lucifer. Oh, yeah. That's not wasted on me. That's not wasted on me. I love how they torture him. I love how they speak to each other, too. Like when they're talking about the chickens and they're like, oh, cluck, cluck. Zip, zip. Zip, Exactly. That's my favorite. Gus, Gus. Lucifer, Lucifer. Yeah, yeah. Cinderella. I I love it. Um, And I always have. Um... Even the sisters are great comic relief, too. As much as you hate them, yes. they're pretty funny. Yeah, they are. They're perfect foils for the stepmother. Yeah. You know, whereas she is so dark, they, as you said, are comic relief, and they really do lighten up what is, other words, a very dark picture that she paints. Um... And I think that it tells a very complete story, albeit an hour and 14 minutes. Because remember, like I said earlier, this was 1950. So like last week, we talked about Dumbo from 1940 was an hour and four minutes long. Right. So these were not 90 minute films. Very few of them were. So to get that much across and become such a classic film in such a short period of time, they had to convey an awful lot. And what I like about it is the pacing. It never gets slow, but it never feels rushed. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, that I don't think a lot of people realize is that the whole film takes place over a span of 24 hours. Yes. That was something we talked about, uh, I think it was back in our first episode when we did Little Mermaid, that you really, you know that Ariel has three days to have to convince Eric to fall in love with her, but like you don't realize how quick the movie actually is as far as real time goes. Right. And... The film really only takes place in two places. You're in the king's palace or you're on their property that Cinderella and her stepsisters and stepmother live, whether that's in the house or in the garden. So the movie doesn't take you a lot of places, but it takes you a lot of places. You know what I'm saying? Like physically, you don't go to a, to a number of locations, but they get everything done so quickly and so neatly. Well, you know why? Budget cuts. Well, yeah. I mean, this the thing is, if you know anything about the Walt Disney Studios or about Walt Disney himself, he was in debt for most of his adult life. And it seemed like almost any time they had one of these films coming out, they were borrowing money from Bank of America and they were constantly in debt, and they were constantly facing bankruptcy, and he would do just enough to pull himself out of it. At the time, the studio was $4 million in debt when they in made Cinderella. In 1950. And, yeah. That, yeah, that's 1950 money. Yeah. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money now, but, like, it's exorbitant back then. Oh, yeah. Um, but much like Snow White... 
this is kind of what pulled them out of debt. And actually at the time it was between this and Alice in Wonderland, but this just happened to be farther ahead with production. So they rolled with it. Good idea. Yeah. Especially now that we've reviewed both films and we haven't even gotten through our full review of this one, but yes, good idea. Yeah, I don't know that Alice could have saved it in the same way. No, I don't think so. I mean, based upon the fact that without even burying the lead and giving the full review, um, the the biggest icon of the Florida parks is Cinderella's Castle. It's a very good point, yeah. So just to put that in perspective as to what this film means to the company, it's not to downplay what Alice means in its own right, but Alice does not have an icon as as Walt would call it, the visual weenie of his park. Right. This one does. And interesting too, um the the castle or the palace I should say, um it's very much stylized in the film. It doesn't... I mean, you could tell when you go to, to the parks in Orlando, when you go to Walt Disney World, you could tell when you look at it that clearly that's Cinderella's castle. For sure. But it is very stylized in the film and doesn't have a, a lot of detail. I think th- some of the backgrounds are where you saw those budget cuts that you talk about. Um, yes and no. I think I agree with you there because you really only ever see the prince's castle far off in a distance. But it's interesting that you bring that up because one of my other notes was how detailed the rest of the scenes actually are. Oh, yeah. Um, Particularly in Cinderella's house. It's Cinderella's house. It was her father's. She's the bloodline. I don't care that Lady Tremaine married in. It's her house. Um, But what I was noticing specifically about the detail was the wallpaper in in the house and um we haven't seen anything so detailed since well 101 dalmatians came after this right 101 dalmatians was hyper stylized but it was like purposely sloppy yes it had like that 60s mod look about it and you knew that it was supposed to be a picture frame on the wall, but it was just kind of like an abstract frame. This, they went in and they actually painted like every little squiggle Mm -hmm. into the wallpaper. And it must have been incredibly painstaking to do that. Right. As you pointed out with 101 Dalmatians, that was a very modern looking movie. Up to that point in time, that was the most modern looking Disney film ever produced up to that point in time but you're right i think the animation in this film all around is absolutely amazing i think that it's bright i think that it's vibrant i love the colors i love i just love the look and the aesthetic of this film i think that for a film that is almost 70 years old yeah, this movie's 69 years old. Wow. I think that the animation holds up. I think it's very clean. I think it's very neat. And I don't really think it looks dated. No, I agree with you 100%. And even where it's not 
always bright. Like what I'm thinking about specifically is um, anytime that she goes into Lady Tremaine's bedroom, um, she calls Lucifer out in the beginning and it's dark because the curtains are drawn. So she pops the door open and you see the the light leak into the room and it's so well done. And then um, later on when um, she drops off the food trays and, and uh, Gus was on one of the teacups and I forget if it's Anastasia or Drizella, admittedly, uh, they freak out and then she has to go back and receive her punishment. The curtains are still closed and you see like the splash on the wall of where the window panes are and it like frames Cinderella in the light. It's it's beautiful. It's dark, but it's beautiful. Yes, and I love their choices for her artwork in general. She's a very pale character. Um, her clothes are sort of dark. I think that just the look of her without her even speaking a word, you know exactly what her role is going to be. And I actually like the fact that her stepsisters, as evil as they are, they have those very bright princess-looking outfits, whether it's their pajamas or their gowns, because they themselves believe to be princesses. Right. That's true. And I I think as far as Cinderella's like work garb, that was probably done intentionally because then when you contrast that to the pink dress and then ultimately her her fairy tale gown, we'll call it, um, those are much brighter, obviously. Right. Um, the scene where her fairy godmother comes in and she turns the pumpkin into a carriage and she turns the mice into um, the the horses. Everything about that scene, when she does bibbidi-bobbidi-boo and she's working with the wand, Mm -hmm. all of that animation is spectacular when she casts that spell. That, I believe, was Walt's favorite scene in the movie, was when her dress transforms. I think so. I think you're right. Question. Yeah. Who had the better dress transformation, Cinderella or Elsa? That's one I want to put out to the listeners as well. So you can hit us up on social media and let us know what you think. But uh, I was thinking about that when we were watching that scene and I was like, this is so well done. Like, it's such an amazing transformation. Then I was like, "Mm, there might be a better one. No, probably this one over Elsa's only because um, and it's not to downplay. See, here's the thing. It's not to downplay how amazing the let it go scene in frozen is and it's also not meant to downplay any of the modern animation but the modern animation and the computer graphics are so sophisticated right now that i think to do what they did nearly 70 years ago hand drawn i think without question is the far more impressive feat. And I also think that a scene like Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo is so influential on so many of the other films that came after it, and it set the standard for what a Disney fairy tale has become. I think that you had plenty of fairy tales before then, but I think that you had a lot of fairy tales come after this one, and this was sort of the benchmark. 
I would agree. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I like this transformation better than Elsa's because I think the whole Let It Go sequence plays into that and it, it's so strong and the music is so driving. Uh, I think that's the better one overall, but I definitely agree that they achieved that sparkle and that same detail hand-drawn. And they did what, you know, it took 70 years of, of developing in computers to do before computers could do it. Here's the difference between the scene in Let It Go and the scene in Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo. The scene in Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo is a victory for Cinderella because mm. she's finally getting what she wants and she's finally getting what she deserves. Whereas in Let It Go, that's a victory for Elsa because Elsa is starting to embrace who she really is and what she really is. And she's literally letting it go. To that point, though. That's a big character development scene. And that, that's what I was going to say, is that Elsa has the edge there because Elsa did it herself. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, so they're both, for their movies, they both serve the very, the very similar purpose, I think. But... Between the two, I do sort of lean towards this one for all of the reasons that I mentioned before. Um, unless you have anything else to discuss in terms of the animation or even the script, I'd like to move on to the music here. No, unless no, you got no, something no. else. No, no we're going back? back a little bit. Okay. Because we've been talking about what this film does right. And for the most part, it's everything. But there are a couple of things that I don't jive with. Um, I'm actually, I didn't see this one coming. So you've kind of caught me off guard. I'm we, interested. We've got three things here. One is less about the movie itself. And it, it's more actually like a Disney history thing. Uh, most people refer to this prince as Prince Charming. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is that like, the early princes were so almost insignificant to the film. I mean, they're significant to the story in that, you know, Snow White's prince has to kiss her. This prince has to, well, he's not even the one doing the dirty work with the shoe. <laughs> yeah. He's not out there pounding the pavement finding whose shoe this is. Right. But um, Prince Charming was more like an idea. And the prince in Cinderella his name is not actually Charming. He was like a, a hybrid of Prince Charming. Um, there was also, I was reading, um, at one point, there was supposed to be like a, like a love triangle with Snow White and that this was supposed to be the same prince. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure how true that is or if they scrapped the idea altogether, but he does look very similar to the Snow White. I mean, there, there's no mistaking that. No, you're right. He's very, he's, you know, he looks just like him. Yeah. But um, that's, that's kind of one of my gripes is that you didn't come up with a new prince. Right. I have some opinions on him, but I'll save it for when we recap the characters individually. Okay. So that's one thing. The other is that Cinderella's real name is Ella. That's her, you know, given name. And the nickname Cinderella comes from 
supposedly because I believe this is in the book and it's certainly been in other Disney retellings that she slept in the cinders close to the fire because it was warm. Right. They kind of gloss over that in this film because they play everything out in the opening narration, which, you know, they start on the book, they do the narration, it's the fairy tale thing, and I'm on board with that. But they really didn't hit on that too much, which I found kind of interesting because you've already shown how horrible her stepmother and stepsisters are. So it's like, was that crossing a line? Is that why we left it out? That you made her sleep on the floor next to the fire? I think for the purposes of this film, that may have been a creative choice only because the entire idea that she would be locked away from the prince when it came to trying to slip her on was locking her in that tower. That's the only thing I can think. That's a good point. That's that's kind of where like you have to take some liberty with it when you're doing an adaptation. So that's that's a really good point. I think you certainly do bring up a valid point. If the cinder in Cinderella is her sleeping next to the cinders, I'm then saying. yeah, I get it. But they might have not found it to be that significant of a plot point. They, her name could just be Cinderella. Okay. But I'm thinking that might be. I'm I'm guessing, but I'm guessing that if there's a reason why, that's part of that creative choice. Well, one for me. And my last thing is that Lady Tremaine looks way too old for Cinderella's dad, even in the flashback. Like, he looks like he married her when she was 60. And now in present day, when we're telling the story with the glass slipper, she's like in her late 70s. That's I don't true. buy any of that. That's true. She doesn't She doesn't age because she's already aged. The only thing they add is the the gray streak in her hair. And it's not even right. like out and out gray. It's it's like slightly different coloring. But when you see the flashback in the actual book pages, she's still got that same hairstyle. Right. But she looks old. Yeah. She does. And I yeah, I I just kind of don't buy it. All right, those are three valid points. I'll give you those. I'm not going to fight you on those. You could take your victory. Um I guess while we're I mean while we're while we're sort of dissecting it a little bit more before we get into the music, we should talk more about these characters. We'll delve into that a little bit more. I think yes. starting with Cinderella probably is the most obvious place to start. Um, I mentioned before how I love her. I'm over this demeanor, and you had said you know she's far more sarcastic than than you realize as a kid. But in spite of the fact that she's gone through all of this. She does try to see the good in everything and everyone. And there's almost no reason for her to be that way, but she is. And that says a lot about her as a person. Right, because she's lost both her mother and her father. And I think that's where you kind of lump her in as this flowery princess because she just goes along with everything and she does what she's told. But, you know, I think what you don't, realize as a kid and I've I've come to appreciate more now is that just because she's got a positive outlook it doesn't mean that she's happy about it right and it's not until 
her stepsisters tear apart the dress and she goes out to the garden and she collapses and says, I don't believe in anything anymore. It's never going to change. It's like, that's what it took. Like, that was her breaking point. She went through all of that, but she did eventually, it did push her over the edge. Right. And that was kind of a really eye-opening scene for me this time around because I think as a kid, you don't necessarily realize that Cinderella is less upset about the dress. I mean, she probably is still upset because this is presumably all she has left from her mother. She does say it's her mother's dress. And I mean, the mother died so young. It's probably one of the very few things that she has left of her. But I think what she's actually more upset about is that she feels like she lost her one shot out of this. And it just goes to show you how smart she actually is. Because another thing that I don't think that you necessarily realize is this was never about the prince. It was never about her landing this wealthy guy. It was just her shot to get out of this. And that's really why she wanted to go to the ball was to meet anyone who could improve her situation. Because you don't... I never realized this actually is that she doesn't know she was dancing with the prince. I mean, they say it, but I think the whole story of Cinderella that's drilled into your head as a kid is that she tries on the glass slipper, she gets the prince and she doesn't even know who she was dancing with that whole time. Right. So she didn't have any preconceived notion. She didn't go in there like her, like her stepsisters would have only been attracted to the prince. So many of those other maidens would have only been attracted to the prince. She was, but she didn't know who it was. Exactly. You know, it it definitely shows a lot about her character. I mean, this is the same person that rescues mice out of traps and and clothes them. Right. You know, like and and that's something too that I love about her is that she does that exact thing. Like she, a mouse, something that's, it's a rodent, it's vermin. But even with them, she looks after them. She looks to take care of them. And more so in a way of like, that's all she has. They're the only friends she has because she does have Bruno the dog. She has the horses and the chickens. So it, yeah, it does show how caring she is. Um, I think the biggest character defining moment for her though is after she leaves the ball and the clock is struck midnight and everything goes back the way it was, uh, the pumpkin crashes and they're kind of in that little clearing in the woods and she thanks her fairy godmother. And to me, that was something that stood out so much on this viewing where, you know, she's lost everything, but like, she's not upset about it. She's just happy to have had her one night out. She's not entitled at all. Right. And doesn't come across as such. She's just appreciative for any little thing that anything does for her that's a positive because of all the negative that she's been surrounded with. Um, so I, I do think that she is, I don't want to say she's underrated, but I think at times, in my opinion, as far as Disney princesses go, and maybe this is because we grew up in that Disney renaissance where you had... Ariel and um, Jasmine, but I think at times she is sort of underappreciated. I think that's it is like 
she does get lumped in with the likes of Snow White because she's not necessarily as outspoken as Jasmine and Ariel and Anna right. and Elsa, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think she was pretty, pretty forward thinking for the time. And I think that they even right down to the animation, they tried to modernize her a little bit. I mean, obviously animation came pretty far f- to that point she's much more detailed than Snow White you know she's got much more of a defined nose but even um she kind of looks like a Hollywood starlet like she's got very full lips like you can see her eyelashes and I think they did it a little bit with Aurora but much more so with her she almost looks like a like a Doris Day or like a Jane Mansfield like I think they really tried to bring her into that 50s era Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I can see that. I agree with you there. One of my favorite characters, and this will come as a surprise to no one, is Lucifer, actually. He's not your typical Disney villain. He's certainly not the villain in this movie. He's kind of the villain's right hand. I mean, he is the villain's right hand. Um, but he's so over-the-top obnoxious but I still find him hilarious and likable because he always gets what's coming to him. He's always foiled. Constantly. I feel like if he would have had speaking lines, and obviously he would have been way too young to actually do the part, but I feel like if Lucifer would have opened his mouth and spoken words, I can just see like Tim Curry voicing that character. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that so much. Um, yeah, I-, I agree with you. I I think that he's just, he's sarcastic, doesn't speak a word, but again, where the animation plays in, where it was so well, his facial expressions were fantastic. They were kind of Tim Curry-ish as well, now that I think about it. I'm saying. Um, And what's interesting, too, I think where you got so much of the personality, I think this is like the first Disney film we've actually seen with a subplot. Because the struggles between the mice and Lucifer were just as important to the plot overall as Cinderella's story. Yes. And the mice, too. I love all of them. I mean, we said that Jack and Gus are good comic relief, but the rest of them are just as good. What I love about them is that they give so much back to Cinderella because she's given so much to them. Yes. And you can tell how appreciative they are and that they go out of their way. They're almost like her eyes in the sky. Yeah, right down to I I thought that was so clever how they used like the walls and this tunnel system that they have. I mean, it's such an obvious choice because that's kind of how mice do get around when they're in your home. Uh but I love how it translated to like this spy system and they were everywhere they needed to be where if Cinderella was off doing her chores they would totally go find out what the mother and the stepmother and stepsisters were doing uh so I thought that that was that was really a really clever way to use the mice yeah and obviously they're the ones that go ahead and do the alterations to her gown Mm. so that she can get to the ball hence why her stepmother and stepsisters are so astonished when she comes down the stairs but they help her out a lot 
but she's not helpless. They they do just enough without watering down her as a character or her as a persona. What's really impressive about them too, uh, and I think I noticed this most in the scene where they're stealing the sash and the beads, their tails are like one pencil mm-hmm. stroke. It's crazy. Like I don't I tried to find how exactly they did the animation for that because I can't imagine from frame to frame just having to do this one swoosh and be able to replicate it however many times it took. Uh, But I really think it's just one clean line. It's crazy. I know. I was watching the same thing and waiting not so much to see a flaw, but to try and figure out how they did it or if if the tails even move. And the tails, they move so well. And they are flawless. It's just amazing yeah. that they were able to pull that off. Which, with it's funny. I don't want to say with such detail because it's really just a curvy line. But they're never jagged. They never jump. They're they look so natural and so consistent. Yeah, which within itself is amazing. Um, we talked about the prince um, a few minutes ago. Yeah, you had more. My big takeaway from him is I don't dislike him, but he he himself doesn't do an awful lot to add to the story. As you pointed out, it's the king that is pushing um, for his son to get married because his son is sort of lackadaisical and doesn't care and he wants to marry his son off so his son settles down and they have an heir to the throne. I get that. Um... He's in love with Cinderella immediately, and yet he doesn't pursue her, as you pointed out. Whereas Chris Pine's character and Into the Woods, he's the one that finds the slipper. He's the one that is trying to find Cinderella. Obviously, he has an evil ulterior motive, which would not have worked for this movie in the very least, But with all that being said, between the two interpretations, his is a better interpretation of the prince than the one we get in this film. (laughs) Sorry, you mentioned Chris Pine, and yet somehow all I can think of is James Marsden (laughs) being the pursuer in Enchanted. And I mean, he goes through the New York City sewer system for Giselle in that one. Both make better princes, though. Right. I think actually this prince charming prince whatever you want to call him was a victim of the budget cut i think they did give him a little bit more backstory because like you said the king says he's like off somewhere gallivanting you never find out exactly what he is like to me he's the entitled one because not only does you know he's not required to be in the palace He's not even there. And then supposedly he found the love of his life and he's not the one who's chasing her down. Right. Like even a Duke that's actually trying on the slippers. Even like a cutaway scene where you would have seen him acting like Gaston, like in a tavern with all of his buddies. Or even, yeah, like if it was a divide and conquer situation, like, all right, Duke, you take the north side of the kingdom, I'll take the south side and we're going to find her. Right. But he doesn't even have any speaking lines. Very few. Yeah, no, that's true. He does, but nothing that really drives the story. 
it, when he's chasing her, that's it. Is what's your name? How can I find you? Yeah. Otherwise, and like, if you love her that much, like run faster. He could have caught her. She's on a glass slipper for crying out loud. A single glass slipper. That's got to hurt. Yeah. Well, let's be real. He he wouldn't have been a wide receiver in the NFL. <laughs> Clearly <laughs> not. Um, yeah, I uh, I don't really have too much else to add on the characters. Because as we pointed out, the stepmother, the stepsisters, they're good. They definitely drive a story across. But I, I don't feel the need to delve into them much more. They're, they're kind of simple for what they are. But I don't think they needed to be more than what they were. Yeah, I mean, for a simplified, they're pretty actually, they're pretty one-dimensional. But for as one-dimensional as they are, Anastasia and Drizella are, they're just insufferable. I right. can't stand them. I mean, I know they're supposed to be the comedic relief, but like, just from the from their first lines where they're screaming for her and ringing the bells, I'm like, oh my God, like, how do you not just walk out of there? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Um, they do serve their purpose, though. They do. Without without a question, they they definitely make sense. And at the same time, I'm I'm not so busted up that they didn't do more with them for the reasons you pointed out. I don't know that I necessarily needed to see more. Of them. No, then then I would like truly hate them. Yeah, it would be too much. It would drag out. But um, I don't I don't find them as funny as I find Lucifer in the sense of they eventually get what's coming to them. I agree. I guess because nothing really happens to them, they just, they can't make the slipper fit. Right. It's not like, again, to bring it back to Into the Woods, which we did review with John Sicari, the Big Fat Panda. You can go back and find that one uh, in our previous episodes. Um, the stepsisters in that movie get what's coming to them because they have a heel cut off. They have a toe cut off so that they can fit into the slipper and the prince finds out that, well, it's not you that, that, that I'm supposed to marry. And he still ends up with Cinderella. And they are sans one toe and sans one heel. But that is where this film got Disney-fied. Because that's the real story. Is they right. were cutting off appendages to make the shoe fit. And I, right. that's what I'm saying. I would have liked to see them get their comeuppance. Have the stepmother lop off a toe. Yeah, but I don't think that this film necessarily needed that i think they wanted to water it down to make it more family friendly more kid friendly i don't think you necessarily needed to see them lose an appendage i i, I think it would have hurt i think it would have hurt this version of the film true but this film has been remade so many times i'm all about cinderella as a horror story now like let's see this that's basically the only version of cinderella that hasn't been made Let's go, Disney Plus. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I I'll pay good money to see that one. Um, moving on to the music here. The first song that you hear, sung by a character at least, is A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. You're not a minute and a half into the film when they hit you with, in my opinion, and this is going to be a hot, topic conversation sure is and you can let us know how you feel about it on social media at monoreal radio on instagram facebook and twitter the film borderline opens up with what might be the most iconic disney song of all time unpopular opinion oh 
<laughs> yeah, I bet you didn't see this coming. Um, I don't love the song the first time I hear it. And I think that's why, you know, like I said before, this viewing of this film totally changed my mind about Cinderella as a character. But I guess that's why I don't appreciate this song so much either. I mean, I will give it this. Lyrically, it is probably the best message of any Disney song ever. But I enjoy this song more when I hear it in the parks than I do her singing it in the film. I even like, and I think it has to do with the whole sequence coming together, I like it better when the mice sing it when they're making the dress. That sped up version that kind of like brings everything full circle. Mm-hmm. But the lyrics are beautiful. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. I mean, come on, no matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing, like that's poetry. The lyrics are wonderful and the melody is fantastic. It's just a it's just a fantastic piece of music. And that's you know, we we talk about it. We I I wanna say we talked about it when we did The Little Mermaid. Certainly we've discussed it before that usually you get not halfway through the movie. But at least like a, quarter. a quarter of the way through, when you get the main character singing about what they want or singing about what they believe in. Or in the case of, say, a Frozen, where she not only sings about what she wants, but she also gets it because she has that, that character arc moment where she changes as a person and becomes what she's really supposed to be. Frozen broke the mold. It's the first scene of the movie where you get her motivation immediately. See, I think that's why, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like the song. I truly appreciate what it is. But to me, it's weird because the lyrics are beautiful, but it lacks that oomph that part of your world has. That's not to say that it's bad. It's not to say that I don't like it. It just, I guess in my mind, falls a little flat in comparison. Okay. I, I disagree, respectfully. Um, but I think, I think they're two totally different songs. I think Part of Your World is phenomenal. It was perfect for that character. I think this song is phenomenal. It's perfect for this character. I think there's also a big difference between a song that was written in, say, 1988 versus a song that was written in, say, 1949. Also written by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. That's the other thing. Yeah. But Ashman and Menken drew inspiration from films and songs like this. Here's, I guess, the difference for me is that there's no call to action in this song the way there is in others. It's just keep believing, don't give up. Okay, great, but her plan to get out of the reign of terror is not revealed in the song. And I think that's the difference is because the song is purely emotionally driven and not plot driven. That's also the huge difference, you know, when we talked about this in the Little Mermaid episode, was that 
when they brought Howard Ashman on, he was such he was such a story person and that's where his focus was. And I think that's the difference is because all of these songs in, in Cinderella really don't really do anything to drive the narrative. And I think, Oh my gosh, I'm just kind of realizing it now is because we've talked about it before. I'm a big musical person and yeah, that's exactly what it is, is that the, the songs are not, plot driven at all and I I think that is what kills this movie for me as a whole it's not to say I don't like it but why it's never been one of my favorites okay wow Um, what a what an aha moment for me good I'm glad you're so happy with it well that's why we do this show we talk through things this is like weekly therapy good for you Take the victory where you can get it, I suppose. The next song is the work song, or as you may know it is, Cinderella, Cinderella. I love this song. I love this entire sequence. And it's Jack that gets it started with, all the time, night and day, it's Cinderella, Cinderella. They're, they're so fed up on her behalf, and the song is so tongue-in-cheek that you can't help but love it, and it's an earworm. Yeah, this is classic Disney. Yeah, everything about it. And I think this is where, you know, you would think that most girls would gravitate towards this film because it's obviously princess heavy. This is where boys can appreciate it too. Yes. These are the scenes where you don't feel like you're watching necessarily a princess film. Right. And I think that unfortunately Disney suffered from a long for a long time from being a company that produced films for girls. That was the stigma they were kind of tagged with because I think they got away from doing movies like this where yes it's a female lead Yes, it's a female title character. Yes, it's a princess film, but there's something there for everybody. It's a family film. That's what it is. And I think for a long time they kind of got away from it. But I love that this film, or sorry, I love that this song, not only does it pick fun at the stepmother and the stepsisters, mm. which it does, but it it's also a vehicle for her animal friends to voice their frustrations and kind of vent about how they're tired of seeing her treated this way. Yeah. And that's a big character moment for them because you see that they appreciate her more than just a person that feeds them. She clearly means a lot to them. Right. And there's a love there and a respect there and they look to carry out for her every day. Right. And that's what I like about it. The most, I'd say. Um, Sing Sweet Nightingale. That's basically every lyric. You just heard it from me. Um, (laughs) What's impressive about this more than anything else is the animation. And it's funny that you had mentioned before how close they were working on Alice in Wonderland and Cinderella at the same time. The animation in this scene is fantastic. It's very much in the same vein as in Alice in Wonderland when she's washing the floor and they're showing the bubbles coming up out of the wash bucket and mm-hmm. she, you see her reflection in each bubble and she's a different 
color and they're using the bubbles almost as if it's four or five different people and they're harmonizing against each other. Allow me to nerd out for a second. You go ahead. Um, this actually was something that Disney pioneered. They did uh, a multi-track recording of it. So they they recorded her singing it. I think it's a three-part harmony. Uh, or not even really a harmony. Um, she just sings it three times and they layered the tracks down. Um, and you can hear it. You can hear it's the same voice singing multiple times. There's no, you know, they didn't get like a company to do this. Right. Not company in the sense of like they outsource, but company in the sense of like a, like a singing trio. Right. To do right. this. Um, yeah. That song, like, I, again, I, this is a revelation. We need plot driven songs in these movies. My note is that I remember as a kid, I found this scene so boring that I was rooting for Lucifer to come and do what he did at the end of it. Fair enough. I'm a horrible person. No. What can I say? No, there's there's not much about this song that's any good because it's just Sing Sweet Nightingale. That's basically it. It's the it's the animation, it's the scene more than anything else. Otherwise, this is completely forgettable. Yeah. And it, even with the bubbles, it has some like pink elephant vibes a little bit. But right. like I definitely appreciate it more now because it was a technological achievement. Yeah. And it is. It's a pretty scene with what they do with the bubbles. Yes, it is. But when I'm a kid, it was kind of a snooze fest. Right. But can you imagine being a kid in 1950 seeing this thing in a movie theater in beautiful Technicolor for the first time? Yeah, before you had cell phones and video games, this was amazing. Yeah, it must have blown you out of the water. Um, now, I said that A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes might be the most iconic Disney song of all time, mm. and I stand by that. But Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo is the showstopper of this movie. That's the jam. Everything about this scene. We talked about the animation earlier, but I love this song. I love the lyrics. And I love how almost manic at times her fairy godmother is. And it, it she kind of just seems like she's making it up as she goes along and she's just going with it. She does kind of seem like a loose cannon. I love the fairy god. We didn't we really didn't talk about her when we were talking about the characters. I guess because she's in the the film for such a short time. Right. She's very important to the story, but yeah, I mean she doesn't she barely has any speaking lines at all. It's just the song. She comes down she comes in, she throws down her song, and out she goes. Right. That's really it. You don't really know where she comes from. You don't know why she's there other than, I guess, everybody has a fairy godmother in these fairy tales, and she came to help her at the most obvious time and the most desperate time. But, yeah, other than coming down and basically fixes her problem for her, as temporary as it is, doesn't serve much more. But obviously the film does not exist without her or without this song or this sequence, in my opinion. Well, in the book, actually, that's where Into the Woods draws from the real book is that there was a tree at her mother's grave and it used to, uh, I, I don't think she planted the things, but I think she used to like, the tree would give her thing. It was like a giving tree. Um and that's where she drew her magical powers from, or like that's where she got the shoes and the dress. Right. Was the connection to her mother. So I guess the fairy godmother is supposed to be represented. They 
probably just to give her like a maternal figure. Um, but yeah, from the first notes of that song, like that takes me back to being a kid and like going to Disney for the first time and like that, that magic when you just hear those first couple of beats. Yeah. And I remember as a kid just loving that whole sequence. This was the most fun part for me. Yes. And she's kind of just making up words as she goes along to make them rhyme. But I, I just love everything about this. Yeah. It, it's completely nonsensical, but in the most perfect way. And uh, Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo actually earned the film two of the three Oscar nominations. It was up for uh, Best Music and I think Best Original Song with that one. And it deserves it. But interesting, I'm surprised that the Academy would have nominated that one over A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. Yeah. Because there's so much... It's such such a more powerful song than Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo. But I also think I also think that the Academy now nowadays more than then has a stick up their butt. I think oh, back yeah. then, I think they just appreciated something that was fun. I don't think that they appreciate whimsy quite as much. Although Man or Muppet did win an Oscar a few years ago. I think it it depends on your voter. I I don't know. Yeah, that, that's that's something you can't really put your finger on a pulse when it comes to the Academy votes. Yeah, but even still, it's a great song, and it does deserve its accolades. Um, so This Is Love is the next song, and I believe it's the last song, actually. Um, this song, again, beautiful melody, very nice lyrics. It sounds like it could have been a Frank Sinatra radio hit. Huh. Like if he had done a duet with somebody. Oh, I love that. I love right? that idea. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to say I'm surprised that they didn't do that because actually it was Mike Douglas, the old TV host, that provided the vocals for... Um, the prince mm -hmm. he did the vocals when he sang but walt didn't have him voice the character with speaking lines because his chicago accent was so thick he didn't want to use him they changed it yeah he was all set to do it and then i think that was like a last minute because walt i believe his focus during uh the production of cinderella and alice in wonderland was over uh in england on treasure island and he was really focused in branching out there in the uk Right. Um, so he didn't have as much story input as he did in other films. Yeah. And I think that at times this film isn't recognized for being as modern as it was for its time. As you had said, Cinderella looks more like that Doris Day sort of character. This song in particular sounds like, as I just pointed out, one of those Frank Sinatra ballads. Something that they were pulling from at the time what was modern influences and putting them into this movie to not only make it successful, but make it relevant for its time. And because Frank Sinatra's music is timeless, and it is timeless, this doesn't feel dated at all. No. I'm even thinking like a little... Uh... Elvisy in the princess parts. A little bit. Yeah. 
a little bit, although this was before Elvis Presley. But it was around the time that society and music and entertainment as a whole was starting to shift that way. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think they drew from influences at the time to make this film. Um, so unless you have anything else you'd like to add on the music or anything else that we've talked about, we can move on to our final recap. The, the famous question, does it hold up? Not only does this movie hold up, but I think that without any sort of debate, this is one of Walt's masterpieces if not his masterpiece, that in terms of animation, because I think the best movie he ever made was Mary, Mary Poppins, Poppins. Yeah, and I then that's 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 written in scribe. That was the best film he ever made in totality. It's hard to compare anything to Snow White because Snow White was so innovative, mm-hmm. and it was a technological breakthrough, a breakthrough, and a technological marvel. And it was earth-shattering. And obviously, this movie does not exist without Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I might be in the unpopular opinion, but if you ask me what's the better film, I think this one is. Oh, 100%. I think, in terms of animation, this is Walt's masterpiece. Uh, To touch on what you said, I think in terms of animation and story definitely better than Snow White which is kind of a hard thing to say because the dwarfs are so lovable like if you're comparing the dwarfs versus the animals in this film dwarfs win hands down every time um but I think overall this is a better film and uh I think it holds up without question because how many times have they retold it I mean you've had in Disney alone Hilary Duff Selena Gomez and Demi Lovato play Cinderella. Yeah. Um, and what I love too is it's it's kind of come full circle with all of the retellings too. This was originally one of Walt's laughograms. Yes, it was. Um, so I love that it's still, you know, being retold and repurposed and, you know, the, the proof really more than anything else is in the parks. It's Cinderella's castle that's never going to go out of style. Right. We mentioned that before. They have the Bibbidi-Bobbidi Boutique. Yeah, and those are being added everywhere. Mm-hmm. Not just in the parks, but they're popping up in the hotels now. I think you can go to Grand Floridian now, and there's a Bibbidi-Bobbidi Boutique. Yeah, they have one. At, I think they, they added one to Disney or Springs. Disney Springs, yeah. They, you know, she's in all the parades. You hear the music. You see the fairy godmothers, you know, the fairy godmother in the parks. You see the stepsisters in the park. You see the stepmother in the parks. And her statue. Her that's st- I mean, that's always going to be there. And how many kids do you see dressed as Cinderella? True. In the parks. Every time you go. The proof is in the pudding. This one holds up. It's timeless. And it's going to last forever. No, and I would say it's it's definitely worth looking at through a different set of eyes because admittedly for me my mind was completely changed watching this now as an adult is that you know she's not a weak princess yes she does what she's told but she's she's very strong because she doesn't want to be in her situation anymore 
she still tries to look on the bright side of things and she's actively trying to figure out a way to improve on it. Yes. I don't, I don't blame her for going along and just doing what she's got to do. I don't think that that makes her weak. I think that that makes her patient. I think that she's biding her time. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that sometimes that gets overlooked. Because it's not like she's sitting there and one day it dwells on her that this is wrong. She knows it's wrong. Right. And she's waiting for the right moment to make her move. Yes. And I agree with you. Watching this as an adult, I loved this film as a kid, but I enjoy it so much more as an adult because I get the nostalgia that I had watching it as a kid, so I remember it for what it was, but appreciating it for what it is and seeing that there's so much more to the film than you appreciate as a child. I enjoyed it as a child, but I've completely come to like it even more now. I wouldn't say I love it because she's still not one of my favorite princesses. Uh, Like I realized that this plot driven music is clearly a big deal for me. Um, But I definitely appreciate it much, much more now. But we're interested in knowing what you have to say. What are your opinions of this film? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Has it aged well for you or has it been watered down for you? You can let us know on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Monoreal Radio News this week. Um, not a ton in terms of entertainment, mostly news coming out of the parks. Big one for you and I this week. And here's the thing I've always gotten annoyed when Disney announces that they're taking away something that I love. Great movie, right? <coughs> But I then see the attraction or the restaurant or the cafe or whatever it is that they put in and go, ah, that's right. It's not universal. They did it right. Um, Uh, That's exactly what I was going to say is you'll forgive Disney for it a million times over, but it took you years to go back to universal. My favorite films growing up were Ghostbusters and Back to the Future. I've heard. The Simpsons ride is terrible. I'll give you that. I really do enjoy the Harry Potter section after reading the first book. I still think the Harry Potter movies are horrible. You will never change my opinion of that. I think they're all bad. I think the first one in particular is unforgivably bad because that movie looked outdated when it came out. The CGI was horrible. But with that being said, when Disney does rehabs, when Disney does refurbishments, when Disney does reimaginings, they do it better than Universal does. For sure. So, when you tell me we're going to take Meisner's Lounge away, I get upset because Meisner's is one of my favorite lounges on property. I love listening to the jazz band. I love... It has that old Florida look. It has that old Florida feel, which it should because you're at the Grand Floridian. I love their cocktail menu. I love everything about it. When you tell me you're going to take it away, I get angry, especially when I hear that you're going to retheme it to make it Beauty and the Beast. You don't need to have characters in the Grand Floridian per se. I think that it does take away from the all-around feel of that hotel. With that being said, we discussed this when we heard the news initially, and I said, you know what? When was the last time I went to Meisner's and it was jam-packed? Hasn't mm. been that way in a while. 
And then you we start reading a little bit more into what they're doing, and it's going to be a three-room lounge, and there's going to be a library. And you go, you know what? It's Disney. Have faith. I'm sure they're going to get it right. Well, that's it. I think that there's a tendency when Disney changes anything that's near and dear to you, and I don't mean you personally, I mean people in general, they have an attachment to it, and they're like, how dare you change my thing? And my gut reaction was the same thing. I love Meisner's. Um, It's such an enjoyable experience. If you've never been before, I highly, highly recommend just popping in for a drink. Um, It overlooks the beautiful grounds of the Grand Floridian, the theming and the cocktail menu, although like not over the top, it just fits the hotel so well. Like I, I, it almost feels like traveling back in time a little bit, especially with that jazz band. And I love that you're sitting behind them and you can hear the music and it's just always so peaceful there. Um, And we always hit it up on every trip. We do the monorail pub crawl, which if you've not done it, it's all the bars along the monorail stops. And I dare you to beat 45 minutes. That was that was a, a personal victory for us. Yes, it was. <laughs> um, but no matter how pressed for time we were to complete the crawl, we always spent some time there. And it's, it's just so relaxing. It's a great, especially because it's so close to the park, to Magic Kingdom. It's a great little place to stop for a break. Yeah. Um, so with that being said, I was really bummed to find out that not only are you taking it away, I was like, we really don't need more character theming in this hotel. You know, like the value resorts are great for the character theming because they do so many fun things. But here it's more about feeling like you're in a different time and place. And I was really bummed to find that out. But then when I found out what it was going to be, I'm like, all right, have faith. Because it's going to be hard to remove me from the Beast Library. If, if they do it right, I mean, that's the dream. Forget the Disney prince. That library is the dream. Right. I mean, these are the same Imagineers that were able to design and execute Trader Sam's. So exactly, you, you do Beauty and the Beast with the library, and there's so much magic in that movie that... I think it is going to be impressive. I just hope it doesn't lose the charm and the feel of what Meisner's is. But do I get a book? That's what I want to know. To read? I, well, what else am I going to do with it? I, I mean, not to take home with you, but yeah, I'm sure there's a book you can read. Or no, make it a bookstore. I'll buy a book. But that's what I'm, see, that's where I'm curious. Is it going to be similar to a Trader Sam's where you take a book off the wall and something happens in the room. Mm. But I, I don't know that I need that kind of fun in that hotel, in that bar. Like, that's what I go to Trader Sam's for. Well, that's where if they go over the top with it, they're going to get it wrong. You know what I would love, honestly? If you could purchase books there, like, give me, like, pretty... Disney fairy tale books like give them nice covers and like actually sell the fairy tale give me that takeaway sure I yeah that would be interesting to get a nice souvenir something a little bit more adult you know for people that do that Disney lifestyle and they like to decorate their home but maybe they want to do something that isn't out of say a gift shop on Main Street USA if they wanted to like dress it up a little bit sure yeah it'd be interesting um 
and I think there was, to be honest with you, um, there was something else going on in the parks, but I, I got so fixated on the Meisner's thing that I almost can't, well, not, not that I almost can't, it's that I can't remember what the other bit of parks news this week was. Oh, uh, D23 just announced it, like, hours ago um they're gonna have the nba experience yes let's take something that failed at universal and put it at disney springs that's right that's why because i don't care about the nba um no and i think other than that news is kind of slow this week because dumbo is the big thing coming out a couple days yeah and not that i've read a ton of them but so far reviews are mixed um but we're going to hold our review and our feeling on it until we actually see the movie so i would say sometime next week or the week after keep an eye on the uh on the instagram because you will probably get a monoreal in a minute uh segment after we see dumbo uh we are going to try to see it next week but if it doesn't happen it should be with within i'd say within two weeks yeah within two weeks of the release um but that's really going to do it for us this week. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you to our sponsor over at Amazon.com. Remember, if you go to www.monorealradio.wixsite.com slash home, you can get the links to the Amazon video for every film we review here on Monoreal Radio. And if you want to go see Cinderella's Castle for yourself, get in touch with me and let me help you plan your vacation. Shoot me an email at j.zolezzi at magicalvacationplanner.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.